if there needs to be a disclaimer, Rebecca is very passionate about this subject. <laughs> I think we all are. Welcome to Densely Speaking, Conversations About Cities, Economics, and Law. I'm Greg Schill, an Associate Professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Today on the show, we're talking about pedestrian deaths. We have, as guests, authors of a paper fresh out in the Journal of Transport and Land Use called United States Fatal Pedestrian Crash Hotspot Locations and Characteristics. This paper comes from Robert Schneider, Rebecca Sanders, Frank Pru, and Hamida Moyet. So we're joined today by two of the co-authors of the paper, Dr. Rebecca Sanders, who is the owner of Safe Streets Research and Consulting, and Professor Robert Schneider, who teaches at the Urban Planning Department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Robert and Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Great to be here. We're also privileged today to be joined by two other scholars who are active in the same area. Professor Tara Goddard, who's an assistant professor at Texas A&M in the Department of Landscape, Architecture, and Urban Planning, and Professor Kelsey Ralph, who is an assistant professor at the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers. So welcome, Tara and Kelsey. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. Kelsey and Tara have done a lot of work on traffic deaths in general and pedestrian deaths and bicyclist deaths. In particular, they've done this individually and also in collaboration with each other. And so we're just very excited to have the benefit of all these scholars here today. Bob, why don't you start by telling us about the paper? Well, thanks. I think it's really important, even before we get into the paper, for those of us as traffic safety researchers who work on a daily basis thinking about traffic injuries and fatalities, that the numbers we see in our databases and in our analyses are really representing people. And so these are daughters or fathers, grandparents, aunts and uncles who have been killed in the case of our study as pedestrians walking on streets. And so this is very important to remember. They aren't just numbers. They are really people. And this is fundamental to trying to do work that impacts people's lives and ultimately saves lives. So our study for this particular paper was motivated by seeing the increase in fatalities over the last decade, more than 50% increase from 2009 to 2018. Not just that, though, those of us on the team, my co-authors and I, have all done analyses of pedestrian safety in various communities and seen that the crashes and Severe injuries in particular often end up clustering in certain types of places. And so when you do that at the local level, you see certain patterns. But we figured, hey, why don't we check into the data at the national level and see if we start seeing some patterns there too. And so what we did was we looked at the data from the fatality analysis and reporting system, FARS. They've been tracking the locations of all traffic fatalities in the United States and giving a geocoded location that you can map since 2001. 
And so we decided we were going to look at the 2001 to 2008 period and then the 2009 to 2016 period, two different eight-year chunks of data, and see if we could find where fatalities were concentrating on the roadway networks across the entire country. And we decided that we were going to look for fatality hotspots that had at least six pedestrian fatalities occur during an eight-year period over 1,000 meters, so just over a half a mile. In that sort of length, that's quite a few pedestrian fatalities to occur. And we found that in the first period, there were 34 of those hot spots. And then in the second period, 2009 to 2016, there were 31 of those hot spots. Interestingly, there's only an overlap of five hot spots between those two periods. So there's 60 unique hot spots in our study. And importantly, what we found was that these hot spots tend to have similar characteristics. First, with respect to roadway characteristics, many of them are multi-lane. 97% of them have three or more lanes for pedestrians to cross. 70% have five or more lanes for pedestrians to cross. Most of them, 77%, have speed limits of 30 or more miles an hour. More than half have 40 miles an hour or higher speed limits. Most of these are high-volume roadways, so 25,000 cars per day or more. That's 62% of them. 100% of these corridors have adjacent commercial land uses. 72% of them have billboards, so you can start to picture what these might look like. Service and retail uses were the most common land uses. I think critically, most of these corridors, 75% of them, were in passing through lower-income neighborhoods. And 53% of all these 60 corridors were either majority Black or majority Hispanic. And so there's some serious equity issues to think about with where these hot spots are located. And we get into some ideas about strategies for addressing the issues of pedestrian safety in these corridors. And we group them into several different types, and we can get into this a little bit. But there are some strategies that may work pretty well in urban corridors that are more dense. But then there's other types of corridors that may need different strategies that are more high-speed regional highways with lots of commercial development around them. And so we suggest some potential strategies there as well. I know that's a lot longer than 90 seconds, but I (laughs) touched on a, a fair amount of things and we can get into those in more detail. Yeah. So just to kind of reframe a little bit, my understanding here is that what we're after here is what are the factors of the cityscape or maybe demographic or social factors that seem to be correlated with these pedestrian fatality hotspots? I guess I kind of want to back up a little bit and maybe open this up to our other panelists. I'm an outsider to this literature, but it seems striking to me that there's this recent increase in pedestrian traffic fatalities. And I wonder like, if someone might be able to provide some context about what are researchers thinking about how can we understand what's driving these recent increases? Is it changes in driver behavior, changes in pedestrian behavior, changes in something else? I have some thoughts on that. Yeah, Uh, go ahead, Rebecca. I appreciate that question because it is really important. But before I answer that, I would like to make one point about what Bob just said, which is that a lot of what Bob has described leads to something that we would call a pattern and that is connected to a concept 
the idea of systemic safety is that we're looking at the system to try to understand what are the combinations of features that repeatedly we can see are associated with either fatalities or fatalities and severe injuries or, you know, name your poison. And what I think is really important about what Bob said is that we identified hotspots in two different eight-year periods, and there were only a handful that were in the same two-year period. So that suggests that there is quite a bit of patterning in the combinations of features that we saw. And not only are those important for the hotspots that we identified, but that combination of multi-lane, 30 miles an hour or more, high traffic, commercial land use, that occurs all throughout the country in one place or another. And so those hotspots might be completely different if we look at 2017 to 2022. And it's really important for us to recognize that those patterns are patterns for a reason, and we need to proactively address them where they occur throughout the country. So that's one thing. But I do have thoughts also about what's going on in the increase. And this is something that Bob and I talk about a lot. And some recent research that's come out from the both the Governor of Highways, which puts out a report every year talking about pedestrian fatalities. It's written by Richard Redding. It's really well done. He speculates about what might be happening, but Even more recently, the AAA Traffic Safety Foundation put out a brief written by Brian Teft and Lindsay Arnold, and I'm forgetting the third author's name, but they looked at the increase. They did a bivariate analysis, so it's important for us to recognize this, right, that it's bivariate, but they did look at all of the factors that we typically think of are associated with pedestrian fatalities. So, and all of this data, it's FARS data. So we've got number of lanes, we've got whether or not there's at an intersection, whether or not there was traffic control, speed limit intoxication on the part of the pedestrian and part of the driver, whether or not it was a hit and run. They also look at race and age and they have a really, it's really well done and really clearly laid out that there are certain aspects of pedestrian safety that increased dramatically in the period from 2009 to 2018. Oftentimes, and it's really important to kind of keep the bigger picture in perspective when we're looking at those specific increases, because a dramatic increase could still mean going from one to 10. But 10 out of several thousand is still a very small number, right? So it's important for our listeners to understand that even if there was a dramatic increase in something, so for example, SUVs, there is an increase in the percentage of people who are buying SUVs, who are driving SUVs. And there's, I think, no doubt that if you're hit as something in your chest versus in your legs, your vital organs in your chest are going to be more impacted by that, right? But in recent research that Bob and I and our co-author on this paper did, Frank Krum, we actually found that when you look at all these things in a multivariate way, the SUV versus passenger car actually is not showing up as a significant driver, we believe, our analysis indicates, of pedestrian fatalities, particularly in darkness. And we looked specifically in darkness because 90% of the increase in pedestrian fatalities from 2009 to 2018 occurred in darkness. So there are some really important things happening, but it's also critical for us to recall that it's a complex system. So we have increases in distraction that are hard to measure, but we believe are occurring. We have a suburbanization of poverty, but again, somewhat difficult to measure in terms of who's actually walking, but likely as an effect. We had TNCs come onto the scene. We also had a recovering economy from a low in 2008-2009, and then as the economy recovers, VMT recovers. So we actually have had a lot of factors, and I think how those all fit together for the increase is something that's still needing to be examined, but we do have some ideas. 
And I would just encourage our listeners to recognize that it's complex and multivariate and that there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to disentangle that. Yeah, thanks. I think what you said is really useful in terms of thinking about the context of what's happening over the last decade or so. So definitely it makes sense to think about maybe increases in VMT because of ride sharing, certainly like smartphones, right? Smartphone distractions and maybe changes in where people are living and traveling on foot. That seems to make a lot of sense too. I was really struck by this concentration of these increased fatalities at night. Does that give us a better clue as to what kinds of factors that we should be really focusing in on? So Bob and Frank and I just wrote this paper on specifically on pedestrian fatalities and darkness and serious injuries, actually. One of the phrases we say is that by definition, roadways are routinely over-designed for the capacity they carry during darkness. So meaning that we don't have the same levels of traffic in nighttime as we do during the daytime, but we design our roads for the daytime use case, right? But then these are under-designed at the same time for the pedestrian safety-related challenges of darkness. So we over-design for use in darkness, but we under-design for pedestrian safety challenges in darkness. And this is because we don't seem to fully account for how dramatically our ability to perceive and react is changed in darkness. And we have tended to rely on street lights, which are super helpful, but are not enough. I mean, we see this because we see thousands of people die a year still in dark yet lit conditions, right? Now, some of those conditions are insufficiently lit. A recent analysis of pedestrian fatalities in Portland found that about half of the fatalities occurred at places where there was street lighting on one side of the road and not on the other. So that's something that we need to grapple with as a profession. But there's also the reality that when you're going 40 miles an hour, even if there's street lighting, it's not the same as in the day. You cannot see, nor can you take in the information that you do see in the same way. So we hear those stories about somebody, quote unquote, coming out of nowhere. And I actually can see that if you're going 35 or 40 miles an hour, and those speeds are too high for urban areas, but they are routinely used in urban areas. And in the study Bob led that we just did, we found, again, that over half of the hotspots had speed limits at 40 miles an hour. You can see how actually someone would literally not see a pedestrian until they hit them. They would feel like that person came out of nowhere, even if the person had already been crossing five lanes of traffic because they could not take in that person's presence. So we fundamentally have to change the design of these roadways. Yeah, I think that's a set of really interesting points, especially about how drivers don't necessarily adjust their behavior to account for extra riskiness of nighttime conditions. I wanted to ask Kelsey to maybe offer a little bit more on sort of the increased distraction factor and what kind of factors are at play there. Sure. So thanks for that question, Jeff. I, oh, distraction is a lot to deal with. I think that the most important thing to remember is that it is true that pedestrians are out there walking distracted, right? But the evidence base for how harmful it is, is not very strong at all. So in a host of observational studies, experimental studies, we can find again and again, people are walking distracted, that it doesn't really change their behavior in a meaningful way, and it does not meaningfully increase their risk. And that's now after 50 studies about distracted walking. 
And so I think that I want to, just like Rebecca and Bob, to really echo the systematic issues here, right? An example I use in my paper in this talk about distraction is that drivers in Edmonton hit 284 people in 2017, and they killed nine of them. And that if we focus on distraction or darting out or the behavior of pedestrians at all, we're going to say, gosh, what were those people doing right before they got hit? But Edmonton drivers hit 49,000 other things, things that were not darting out. They hit 5,500 stationary objects, signs, parked cars. And so when we say it's about people walking distracted, I just want us to zoom out to look at all of the things that people are hitting on our over-engineered roadways. I don't know. Maybe we should look at the behavior of those parked cars and signs that keep keep going. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every time someone runs into a building, I think to myself, was that building wearing a reflective vest? Were they texting? They were. That's really what's happening here. It seems difficult to ignore driver distraction from smartphones, right? It's striking, right, that the timing here is awfully suspicious with now we're like 14 years, 13 years from the introduction of the first smartphone. That seems to coincide pretty neatly with the rise in pedestrian deaths. That's true. But at the same time, our European peers have seen pedestrian deaths decline. And they're making meaningful changes to their road network and meaningful changes to their automobile regulations. Meanwhile, we are having larger and larger cars, faster and faster streets, and we're sort of shrugging our shoulders at distraction. So there's nothing inevitable about this. It doesn't have to be just about distraction. I would add to that, too, that I think Kelsey's paper and her work has really shown that the distracted pedestrians that a lot of people are talking about or you see a lot of safety campaigns aimed at aren't shown in the evidence to be useful or even addressing the issue. I think many of us, or certainly I'll speak for myself, I am very interested in distracted drivers. The difference there being that drivers have the ability to cause the harm, right? They're driving the 4,000-pound metal glass box that can travel way too fast for the conditions. So I don't think any of us are suggesting that distraction of drivers isn't a problem or an issue. It's just that when you pair that with the design of the roadways and the land uses and the lack of facilities and safe facilities for pedestrians, even when the land use is there, support pedestrian activity and say to someone who wants to cross the street, yes, you Of course, there's a bus stop on this side and a Walgreens on that side. Why wouldn't you cross there? But the road is absolutely not built safe. I think that gets into a basic fairness issue here, which you see in many areas of law. The basic question is, how much risk should people who aren't participating in a given activity be exposed to from that activity? So you can think about this, for example, in the law of armed conflict. You're not allowed to bomb civilians, right? Combatants are allowed to attack each other in certain conditions, and even there, there's some restrictions, but it's understood that armies, for example, in war will try and kill each other, and that's okay from a law of war perspective. It's not okay to target civilians, and in more prosaic circumstances, you can see that in tort law domestically. So, for example, if you're jogging in a park that has a baseball diamond, there's some risk that you'll accidentally get hit by a fly ball. And we have doctrines in tort law that make it basically impossible for you to recover if you do, as long as it's an accident. And that's grounded in something called an assumption of risk. And the idea is, even if you're not playing baseball, you're taking advantage of the park, 
you're on notice, you have awareness of this risk. And the fairly common risk is one that you can mitigate pretty easily as a jogger, right? You keep an eye on the ball while you're jogging and the park also puts in some safeguards like a cage maybe behind the plate. But what you don't expect is to get shot by somebody shooting a gun doing a target practice at the same park. And that's because you're not assuming a risk of getting shot when you go to a park. In fact, you can't shoot guns at a neighborhood park. So it seems to me that the challenge in pedestrian safety is that we don't have this kind of compartmentalization. You can operate heavy machinery at high speed in a public right-of-way adjacent to sidewalks, and even in many cases, there is no sidewalk. And so the pedestrian is exposed to an elevated level of risk. But the pedestrian is not really able to take advantage of that. So they're not doing the equivalent of taking in the park and enjoying the park. And they're also not able to mitigate their risk in the same way that the jogger would by simply keeping an eye out for the ball because of the speed and quantity of vehicles that are on the road in a variety of conditions. So there's a a kind of Peltzman redistribution going on here. Sam Peltzman wrote this now kind of legendary economics paper in 1975 about risk compensation. and, And one concept he tees up is that seatbelts might be potentially beneficial for the driver, but maybe that risk is getting redistributed to people outside the car. And I think there's an unavoidable moral and legal trade-off there. And so to me, this provides additional support for focusing on the behavior of those who benefit most directly from the activity and who are engaging in it, which is people who are driving. So you bring up some really, really important points that are fundamental to how we think about our road space and roads as public space. So first of all, you mentioned the safety differences between people who are in vehicles versus people who are outside of them. And we've seen over the last decade that basically the change in fatalities to people inside of the vehicles has been almost nothing. Whereas people outside, pedestrians, bicyclists, and even motorcyclists have seen increases in their fatalities. So as the system has been redesigned, and that includes changes to vehicle safety design, we've had a greater impact on the people outside the vehicles, and they're receiving the brunt of the increased risk in the system. So we need to think about how we are distributing that and if it's fair. I just want to quickly say, Tara and I have talked about this quite a bit, actually, that the idea of needing to change driver culture, we've created a monster because it's such a negative cycle, right? The very moment that you plan for automobility, you make everyone else less safe and less comfortable. And so that inspires people to drive more, discourages them from walking more and biking more, right? That happens. At the same time, I don't think that that cycle has to be inevitable. And Kelsey, you brought up some examples we have from around the world. We tend to use Western Europe a lot, but there are also examples from places in Latin America or in Asia that never did become so car dominant as we are. And there are also examples of places that were really car dominant, like Copenhagen in the 1950s and Amsterdam, and made a series of choices against people clamoring for continued road building to do things differently. There's some inevitability, I think, that we feel because we've done such a poor job with sprawl and with creating these roadways. But we have to remember that that's a negatively reinforcing cycle and that we can throw a wrench in it and we can turn it back. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. 
I think we get stuck as a profession in the cost of this and the inconvenience of it. And this is one thing that I love so much about Jeanette Sadiq Khan, that she didn't wait for perfection. She used ugly, (laughs) at times, temporary materials that were extremely effective at redesigning a space. And then they went back later when they had more money. But I'm not actually sure that we'll ever have enough money to go back later for all of the places. So if we had Jersey barriers on our roads and that made protected sidewalks and bike lanes and took away a lane of traffic from here to eternity in the United States, and that's the way that we reclaim space and gave drivers different signals, I'm all for it, actually. We have so many brilliant artists. They could paint like it will be fine. I think what I'm understanding better as a result of this conversation is that it doesn't seem like, based on what I'm hearing, that this is a design problem or an engineering problem. It sounds to me like this is an allocation problem. What kinds of uses get allocated road space? Where do policymakers decide that risk gets allocated? Am I getting the right message for what you guys are saying? That's interesting. I really appreciate that you just phrased it that way, Jeff, because you are an economist. And so it's a way of thinking about it that I think is a different framing. Ultimately, I would say the thing is, even though you're correct, I believe that it is an allocation problem, the allocation manifests itself via design. So I don't think it's accurate to say that it's not a design problem, really. Maybe theoretically, it's not a design problem, but in actuality, it is a design problem. It manifests itself through the way we design our roadways. You know, that's what we tend to have most control over as uh, transportation professionals. It becomes a design problem, even if it starts as an allocation or if we're quite honest, a priority problem, right? Like these are the road users we think are most important. Therefore, we allocate the most priorities to them. Therefore, they get the space and they get it consistently. And not only do they get the space, but they get the operations that go with their dominance in the space. So they get the 40 mile an hour speed limit, or even to be just quite frank, 30 miles an hour. 30 miles an hour The research is very clear that people die at 30 miles an hour all the time, even if when we're looking at the statistical model of injury severity to speed, 30 miles an hour is much less injurious than being hit at 40 miles an hour. It doesn't matter. At some point, you have enough people being hit at 30 miles an hour that your numbers are still really high for fatalities at 30 miles an hour. So this is a speed that we actually, until recently, was considered completely safe in our cities. The numbers don't bear that out. So. That's my response to the idea of allocation. Yes, it's allocation, but it's manifested through design. I wanted to come back to the paper a little bit. There was one interesting result that I hope that you guys could talk a little bit more about. So you identify these hotspots. And so there's kind of two clusters of hotspots. So one kind of hotspot is a multi-lane highway surrounded by a mix of retail and commercial uses. But then the other big hotspot turns out to be New York City. What are we learning from the fact that New York City is a place that has a lot of hotspots? Yeah, that's a great, great point. And I was hoping we'd get back to this too. So we looked at the clusters of different types. And so these are types of hotspots that have similar surrounding land use contexts. And you described the New York City types. There's also some similar ones in other major cities like Philadelphia and LA and Miami. But those are different 
from what we call regional highway corridors, which are often a multi-lane arterial state highway that is connecting one urban area with another area or extending out into the suburbs from an urban area. And the regional highway is a particularly difficult one because in general, it was designed in an automobile-oriented fashion. And so the highway itself serves the main traffic and all of the businesses and employment opportunities and residential areas out there were developed around that with automobile access as the primary type of transportation. New York City and these other city thoroughfares are very different in that the city fabric was there from when these cities were first developed in sometimes the 1700s, 1800s. They're very oriented towards walking cities and then ultimately public transit, streetcar routes, those sorts of things. Their thoroughfares where there's high concentrations of pedestrian crashes are places where you have four or six lane, busy, busy roadway with lots of pedestrian activity on the sides of it and crossing it. What is an opportunity in these places like New York is that there are many other options to get around besides an automobile. And so if you reduce the number of traffic lanes that are available to automobiles or reduce the speed limit for the automobiles and inherently, of course, reduce the risk to pedestrians by doing that, people still have other ways to get around. They may be able to take the subway. They may be able to ride on a bike in a different corridor nearby. So they can find different ways to get around. But in these regional highways, the only way to go is to drive on this main corridor. And there aren't too many other options besides driving to get from one place to another. That includes the people getting from place to place as well as the goods going from place to place. So that's what makes those so much more challenging. So we talk a little bit about some strategies that could be done in those corridors as well, such as redeveloping the land uses over time, redeveloping parking lots. In some cases, in the corridor itself, lowering the speeds, using pedestrian hybrid beacons to help people cross the street. In many of these corridors, there's two or fewer signalized crossings over 1,000 meters. So very few opportunities for people to get across the street. So can we actually signalize those? Of course, that requires traffic to slow down a little bit, and there's a trade-off there. So we need the land use to go along with these transportation safety improvements. One thing that I wondered about was whether we can learn something also from places that see very few or zero pedestrian deaths. And I sort of understood from reading your article that that might be kind of like a difficult thing because of data limitations on these other factors that we're thinking about when thinking about what are the causal factors here. What kinds of advances in either data collection or availability would be especially useful for thinking about maybe this question of like, what can we learn from the other end, places that seem like exceedingly safe? Well, Bob, do you want to talk about pedestrian exposure? Bob's done so much work in this area. That is definitely one of them. And essentially, we need to know a lot more about how many people are actually crossing these streets, how many people at various different times of day so that we can get into this issue of how risky it is at darkness versus 
daylight, for example. We just don't have good data on the number of people who are out crossing the street. We have pretty good counts of cars using street corridors, but we haven't prioritized pedestrian counts in how we collect data. It's only been in the last 10 or 15 years that the profession has started to focus on that. Because of it, we can't come up with a good risk per million crossings. Here's how many pedestrians we expect to get hit. If we had that data, we could then say, this is the riskiest type of location and therefore we should prioritize it. Or we know that this particular type of roadway design is associated with this level of risk. Therefore, we should do X, Y, or Z about it. So the exposure piece is a really important one. That's a really clarifying answer. I'm seeing like these new applications of this anonymized cell phone location tracking data. And I wonder if that might be useful in the future for thinking about exactly these issues. People are definitely looking into that. And there have been some pedestrian volume estimation techniques that have been based on those. Though Rebecca and I have looked at these a little bit. And in some cases, they aren't fully representative of the pedestrian crossings, partly because some people aren't walking with their cell phone. And so we can potentially run into equity issues when we consider that type of technology. But it's interesting to look at because we got to figure out better ways to get to the exposure data. I think, Jeff, to your point about data, there are also additional variables that would be great if we could capture in our crash report. So the model minimum uniform uh, crash criteria is a set of guidelines that has a very long list of variables that are recommended for crash uh, reporting, but certainly they're not necessarily standard. And you have places in the United States that actually do a really nice job of capturing crash data, and you have places that capture quite a bit less. Then there is an additional challenge that some places make that data publicly available. So for example, Bob and I both, we are old colleagues from Berkeley where we worked for the Safe Transportation Research and Education Center. And that center runs the Transportation Injury Mapping System, TIM, which takes California's DOT data and makes it publicly available for analysis for basically the past 10 years of data, which is amazing because it allows people like students like us or other professionals to get in there and try to analyze the data and again, look for these patterns, right? But then you have other places, I won't name names, but I did one time work for a location where I tried to get the state crash data and I was going to have to put in a FOIA request for every single crash record, which would have been just an absurd use of my time. One request per crash, oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So what that serves to do is squash research. So like we don't have a great handle on what's going on in that place, right? Because they're making it incredibly difficult. So so there's the pedestrian exposure data, which is really underdeveloped, but there also are some very basic things in addition to just regular crash data, you know, like we've talked about the land uses, pedestrian countermeasures that are not routinely captured in crash reports. There's just a lot of environmental information that would be very helpful for us to better understand what's going on systemically. I have a question for you. The data thing is is something that we all, and by we, I mean those of us on this podcast today, because we all talk to each other about the need for better data and who gets to tell the story after a crash. In your work in this paper, you used a variety of data sources, right? You used FARS, but it wasn't just FARS. Then you looked at your corridors based on GIS, based on whatever local government. I'm not sure if you actually got map layers from localities, but 
you even looked at satellite data or maybe Google Street View. So you use a lot of approaches to, to piece it all together. And so I'm just wondering for local government officials or planners or engineers at localities, how might they do something similar within their capabilities and in reasonable way that they could kind of apply this approach so that they can evaluate their corridors ahead of time and identify hotspots ahead of time? Yeah, so just a little bit about the methods. I've got to give a lot of credit to Hamada, who was spending hundreds of hours going through Google Street View and looking at the aerial photos as well that are available through Google Earth of each of the corridors and documenting the land uses in depth. I think that that's somewhat special for our study because we had to do 60 corridors there in a variety of different jurisdictions across the country. If somebody is at their own local jurisdiction that has good land use data, parcel level land uses and maybe building setbacks and those sorts of things, they can do that on their own from a GIS layer. They wouldn't have to go and do it from Street View. And then getting the roadway data on number of lanes, vehicle volume, speeds. Most regional metropolitan planning organizations have that sort of stuff. So I think it's possible, but it's just hard to do at a national level. It's possible within your region to take the information from this study and say, hey, here's the type of roadways that we might see these same sorts of concentrations of fatalities on. Even if it didn't happen in this last six years or last eight years, we may see it coming up in these coming eight years. So I think this can be used. It's just, it does take a fair amount of data to understand and develop the study itself. So this has been really terrific. I feel like I've learned a lot from this paper and from all of you. Rebecca and Bob, I wonder if you might have any final thoughts before we shift into our appendices segment. I'll give Bob the last word, I guess. First of all, thanks. It's been a great discussion. And I think you can tell we're all really passionate (laughs) about this. I think my final thought is I do want to end on an optimistic note that this is not inevitable. We made choices to get ourselves into this situation and we can make different choices. And not to be dramatic, but anyone who has ever gone through therapy or anything like that and thinking about like, what do you have control over in your life? What can you own? This is something we can own. We can make different choices. And I know we're going to get to this in the appendix, but I will just put in a sneak plug for the NUTCD. There are decisions being made right now that affect the way we design our streets. This is a perfect time for this podcast. Thank you for orchestrating it at this moment because we do have the ability to go in right now and make comments that could change the future of our streets. It could facilitate that change happening more quickly than others. Even if the MUTCD is passed the way that it is today, we still have the ability to advocate for different streets, to put the pressure on our politicians, and to make the case for different designs. But we do actually have a unique opportunity right now to try to get the guidance changed. And I hope that our listeners after this podcast will take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, I guess I really appreciate the challenges that come from both Tara and Kelsey in really figuring out how can we get people to care. And I think one idea in terms of future research that would be helpful is looking at cities or regions that make the choices to actually improve these corridors and redesign them, making some of the safety improvements that we know can be made. 
and then documenting what happens and show that there are X number of lives saved or deaths prevented. And that maybe at the same time, things weren't quite as bad for drivers as they might've thought. And actually there were some additional benefits to other types of street users and ultimately the community as a whole through those changes. So I think some case studies like that would be great to see in the future. One that we just noted in our study itself was one of the thoroughfares in New York City that had been a hotspot in 2001 to 2008. It had something like eight fatalities in it. It was First Avenue uh, around 20th, uh, 14th to 20th Street or so. And they redesigned it from five lanes down to three and added a dedicated bus lane, dedicated bike lane. The pedestrian crossings were much narrower. And then there was only one fatality that occurred in the next eight-year period. And so those sorts of changes you know, may have had that positive effect and saved lives. So if we can demonstrate that more, I think we can help make the case. Great. Well, thanks so much. So now it's time for our appendices segment where we go around in round robin format and share something that we would like our listeners to know about. So Tara, why don't you start us off with your appendix? Sure. This is a fun way to think about this. And I hope that my contribution brings together a lot of the topics that we've touched on today. So we usually talk about disruption, maybe in the tech space and less in the transportation space. But the pandemic and the changes of the last year have really, truly disrupted our transportation system as it has disrupted the rest of our lives. And even though it's been a horrific thing and that doesn't change, there have been people making positive changes to transportation out of it. And so I just wanted to highlight in particular San Francisco. San Francisco has just introduced legislation today here in early March to make their shared space program a long-term program. So this is a program that they started just last year as a way to expedite businesses in particular requesting permits to do outdoor shared spaces to help them keep business going during the pandemic. So this touches on what Everyone on this call, I think, has looked at a little bit, and our colleague Tab Combs has really been cataloging these different shared streets and tactical urbanism, and there's a lot of different names, but ways to provide or reallocate that public space for people to use when we can't be indoors and crowded, but also it's highlighting opportunities for how we reallocate our space long-term. So... San Francisco introduced this program, and in, since June 2020, over 2,000 permits have been granted for curbside or sidewalk permits to do these outdoor spaces. And again, this speaks to this reallocation that become permanent. Immediately, people have raised really important equity concerns, or where are these spaces happening? Who do they benefit? Do they have disability, negative disability issues with how people get around? And I certainly was skeptical, but they've Looking at the business owners who've been able to use these programs, 50% women-owned businesses, a third of them are immigrant-owned small businesses, a third of them are minority-owned, 84% of them said it allowed them to reopen under theirs, and like 94% of these businesses said they want to continue to operate these kind of outdoor spaces going forward. So I think this is something where as a practicing planner in the past, business was often seen as 
the biggest barrier or opponent in some of these street reallocations we're talking about. But I think this program really can show that the way that both businesses, the land uses nearby can have effects or be a team member that supports these kind of reallocations of space. So keep your eye on that legislation and where that goes in San Francisco. And hopefully we'll see some good shared street work out of it. Thanks, Tara. That's a really promising experiment. And it'll be interesting to watch what happens. I think that also dovetails nicely with the administrative burdens literature showing that administrative burdens act as a regressive tax. And so streamlining them can open up some opportunities that are more evenly distributed maybe than the status quo is. So that's um, that's neat to see. Kelsey? Picking was so difficult. I'm one of those people who have like eight different books going at the same time. But one I've enjoyed very recently is The Big Fat Surprise, which is a story of the American Heart Association and research about cholesterol and the link between diet and health. And it's a little outside of what we're talking about today, but it resonated with me because of its relationship between how ideas, even if they're not sort of well-evidenced, how those ideas become common sense and institutionalized at major government organizations. And I think the parallels between dietetics and traffic safety are incredibly interesting. Bob, what's your appendix? Yeah, I would love everybody to take a look at the International Transport Forum's Road Safety Annual Report 2020. So if you get a chance to Google that, it gets to something Kelsey mentioned before, and I think Tara and Rebecca are very familiar with too, just how much progress other countries around the world have made in traffic safety. Well, we have made relatively little here in the United States. And I'm going to call people's attention to page 18 if they go to that report. It's got graphs showing the number of fatalities per 100,000 residents in each country starting in 2000, going all the way to 2019. And so you can see from those graphs how other countries who are at a relatively similar spot as the United States in 2000 have made much more progress. Austria, Belgium, Czech Republic, France, Greece, Hungary, Italy, South Korea, Luxembourg, Poland, Portugal, Serbia, Slovenia, and Spain, all of them have surpassed us in terms of our levels of safety. And so it just shows there's other places, other cultures, other communities that have done a much better job in traffic safety as a whole, especially as well as with pedestrian safety. But these charts focus on overall road traffic deaths. And I think it's very important for us to look internationally for some inspiration as well. Great. Yeah, that's a really impressive report. I was struck by that as well. And international comparisons are hard, but we are just getting our butts kicked by the OECD across the board, whether you're talking about uh, Europe, where you might say, well, they had an advantage in terms of their historic land use, but it's still nevertheless notable how much they've increased their success rate there, even though they already had that advantage before, but they've nevertheless made a lot of improvement. But also places like Canada and Australia that have land use that in many cases actually post-states out of the United States and is more auto-centric, and they've still done a lot better. Yeah. They were doing better in 2000 and now are doing even much better than we are. Yeah. So I think that's a little surprising, right? Because some of these places are very car-centric. You're talking about 
Denmark or Switzerland or whatever, that seems a little bit alien to Americans, but just north of the border, they're really kicking our butts. So that's super interesting. Rebecca? Well, I mentioned this earlier. The Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, otherwise known as the MUTCD, is currently undergoing comment. It's in a comment period after having been heavily revised. I understand that our podcast may not be released by the time that there's still time to comment on it. But what I want our listeners to understand is that a lot of the MUTCD is actually considered guidance and not standards. So there is a way that they talk in the MUTCD. They use the words should, shall, and may. And what happens is that a lot of things that I think pedestrian forward, (laughs) pedestrian advocates um, would like to see they are not used with a should. So for example, I think we all understand that if you have a pedestrian signal head on a traffic signal, that gives pedestrians really critical information about whether or not it's a safe time to cross, right? Whereas if you walk up and you don't know how long the signal's been green, you don't know if you have enough time to cross that four or five, six lane roadway. A pedestrian signal is designed literally to give you that information. If there's a walk signal, you should have enough time. Now, we can talk at another time about whether or not that's actually the case, but theoretically, that's what's supposed to happen, right? But because there's no should, that is not required. And so we have a lot of places that continue to opt out of providing pedestrians this really critical information. So what I would like our listeners to understand is that there is a way for them to put pressure on their local engineers to do better than they do. There is more leeway within the MUTCD than is often acknowledged. If this, by chance, this podcast does air while there is still a comment period, our readers or our listeners, rather, sorry, can go and search for it, regulations.gov, and perhaps Greg and Jeff, we could include a link if there is time to do that. Otherwise, I think just fitting in with the idea of anything that continues to push us forward and to make us seize the vision and the future that we want to see any material like that, I would include in my appendix today. Thanks. Yeah, the role of MUTCD is, I think, one that's coming under growing scrutiny, especially with the revision process that's currently underway at DOT. The reality is it's been attracting increasing criticism over the years. I think it has been seen as a technical manual, which, of course, it partly is saying things like how big should a stop sign be or what color should a, a stripe on the road be. But it is also a policy document, and it has legal consequences. And I've written about this elsewhere, which I'll drop a a link in the show notes. But the legal policy and technical convergence is pretty powerful. Jeff, what's your appendix for this week? So I wanted to point the listeners to a recent paper by two economists on traffic safety. So this is a paper by Jonathan D. Hall, who's at the University of Toronto, and Joshua Madsen, who's at the University of Minnesota. And the paper is called, Can Behavioral Interventions Be Too Salient? Evidence from Traffic Safety Messages. And so what they're looking at is they're trying to estimate the effects of these highway dynamic message signs. So we've all seen these, you know, they're black and they can be configured to show different messages. And so in Texas, these signs are used to display year-to-date counts of road fatalities. So for example, a message might be 1,600 deaths so far this year on Texas roads. So what these guys do is they exploit detailed data on when these signs are turned on and when and where crashes happen. 
And so an interesting thing in the Texas setting is that these messages are displayed on a regular schedule of one week per month. So they can compare what happens in that week to other weeks when those signs are not on, on the same stretches of roadways. And what they show, surprisingly, is that these messages actually cause significant increases in the number of crashes. So when you turn these signs on, there's an immediate increase in the number of crashes and over space, that effect dissipates. So the effect is strongest, the increase is strongest right after the sign. And then by the time you get seven kilometers after the sign, the effect goes away. And so the third feat fact, which is kind of mind blowing, is that this effect increases with the displayed fatality count. So it's bigger at the end of the year when the number of deaths reported is highest. And so the interpretation that they attach to these findings is that the fatality messages somehow like add to the driver's cognitive load in a way that distracts them and temporarily interfering with their ability to respond safely to changes in traffic conditions. What I kind of like about this paper is that it's just the value of evidence, right? This is a policy that, you know, in fact, inspired similar policies across the country in different states without much evidence about its effectiveness. And it turns out it's actually kind of bad and maybe states shouldn't be doing this. That is super interesting. I've wondered about that sometimes with the COVID signage. Often they'll have signs about buckle up and wear a mask and so on. And that's fine messaging, but it's crossed my mind whether that's it's effective to inundate people when they're driving with unrelated messaging like that. So my appendix for this week is something called the Sustainable Development Code. And you can find it online at sustainablecitycode.org. One thing that is frustrating in working on the legal side of these issues is that there's often not an off-the-shelf solution. I suppose that's a frustrating aspect, no matter what perspective you're coming from. But basically, each of these problems, as we've talked about, is an onion kind of full of confounding layers. And you peel back one and just find another one, especially where land use is concerned, because it's so difficult yeah, so that, that corridor in New York, for example, is a good counterexample because it's such a dense area with such rich public transportation that even if you shut that down to car traffic entirely, that people would have good alternatives, good substitutes. And of course, that's not true in suburban or exurban or rural America, or even in many other cities that were later along the development cycle than New York. So this thing, I think, is really helpful, the Sustainable Development Code. Because it has a kind of off-the-shelf quality. Their mission is, quote, to help all local governments build more resilient, environmentally conscious, economically secure, and socially equitable communities. And they have a subchapter on pedestrian mobility that contains specific code suggestions to enhance walkability and safety. And these have examples from some places that have implemented them. That's just one of the subchapters they have in many other areas as well. And it's a project that's the collaboration of many people. It's headed up by a colleague of mine at Vermont Law School, Professor Jonathan Rosenblum. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'll share that I have some students who are working right now on aspects of the SDC. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for such a great conversation. It was a pleasure having you all on the show. Thanks, everyone. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> great opportunity. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests, Robert Schneider and Rebecca Sanders, and to our guest co-hosts, Tara Goddard and Kelsey Ralph. 
thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn, and to our producer, Skylar Pals. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Densely Speaking, and be sure to let us know what you think of today's show. You can also find us on our personal accounts. I am at Greg underscore show. Jeff is at Jeff R. Lynn. And Bob is at Ped Bike Bob. Rebecca is at Rebecca L. Sanders. At Dr. Tara Goddard and at KM Ralph. We will add all of those to the show notes. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other people find podcasts. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 